Well, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, and we'll read a very familiar passage. Luke 2, one of the most beloved portions of our Bible. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger because there was no room for them in the inn. I've preached this passage before and we tend to think of this as kind of the starting point of the story of Jesus Christ. This is where it all began. This is where Christmas starts. But in John chapter 12, John chapter 8 rather, beginning in verse 12, Jesus began a long conversation with Jews in Jerusalem, particularly the Jewish leaders such as the Pharisees. And if you recall, the Pharisees were this sect of Jews which had added tremendously impossible requirements to the law of God. They'd shattered any vestige of true internal faith in God in favor of a a purely external, moral, empty religiosity that had no true faith. And Jesus begins this conversation with them by asserting to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And immediately the the Pharisees retorted that Jesus was saying this about himself. He wasn't appealing to any outside or higher authority. He was, as they put it, bearing witness about himself. And so what was his answer? He said, well, he came from heaven. And so he knows what he's saying is true. And God the Father bears witness to him as well. They asked him in reply, Where is your father? And there's an intimation here of maybe Jesus didn't know who his father was. Jesus told them that they don't know his father. And he declared that these Pharisees were going to die in their sins unless they believed on Christ. And so back and forth they went, Jesus ripping them to shreds with perfect truth, telling them piercing facts about themselves. You are slaves to sin, verse 34. The word of God finds no place in you, verse 37. You are not Abraham's true children, verse 39. The devil is your father, verse 44. You don't believe my words because you're not of God, verse 47. And he says, if I said I don't know God, I would be a liar just like you. And then Jesus made a statement that would make their eyes pop out. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. They were incredulous. Abraham had been dead for something like 20 centuries. And they retorted, you're not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? And at this point, Jesus issued a declaration, a proclamation that was so outlandish, so audacious, and to their darkened minds, so sacrilegious that they immediately tried to murder him in their self-righteous fury He answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, why did that statement so infuriate these leaders? Because Jesus was claiming to have an eternal nature. And there's only one being who has an eternal nature, that is God, God alone. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that they were defending God. They weren't. There wasn't any sort of righteous love and affection for God. No, they couldn't stand the fact that the Messiah of God, the one sent from heaven, would dethrone their self-righteous religious chokehold on the people and that he would call out their empty religiosity, their so-called righteousness that they said was faith. And he was going to call them out on it. That's what they hated. But if they had read and comprehended their Bibles which we know is the Old Testament, they shouldn't have been surprised at all that God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is walking among them here on earth, that God himself had been here before. 
that they had been able to look at the scriptures and simply read what the Bible says, they would have found well over a dozen times in the Old Testament when God appears as a man. And the Old Testament has a technical term used in almost all of these appearances, and that term is the angel of the Lord, or more specifically, the angel of Yahweh. You'll note in your English Bibles, Lord in all capitals is the traditional translation for Yahweh, the covenant name of God. And the angel of the Lord doesn't just make fleeting cameo appearances. He doesn't just appear here and there in little, little bits of time. He appears first just 16 chapters into the beginning of the Bible and appears last just two chapters from the end of the Old Testament. He appears to Hagar, to Abraham, to Eleazar, Abraham's servant, Jacob, to Moses, to Balaam, to Joshua, to all of Israel, to Gideon, to Samson's parents, to David, to Elijah, to King Hezekiah, to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to Daniel, to Zechariah, and Malachi. And we see the angel of the Lord in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Joshua, Judges, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Isaiah, Daniel, Zechariah, and Malachi. As 36% of the books of the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord is there. In fact, you can almost trace the whole story of the Old Testament by following the appearances of the angel of the Lord. Because when he appears, it's always with a specific purpose in mind, always with a specific mission. Now, theologians use the term theophany to speak generally of any appearance or manifestation of God in the Old Testament. For example, Exodus 34, 5 records the Lord coming to Moses in a cloud and proclaiming his mighty name to Moses. That's a theophany. But when we get specific about an appearance of the Son of God, of the second member of the Trinity, we say this is a Christophany, obviously after Christ, a pre-Bethlehem appearance of Christ Jesus. And in fact, it is the Lord Jesus working behind the scenes to sovereignly bring about God's plan for Israel and for his own coming ministry on earth. And so for this Christmas season, that's going to be our focus, a study in the Christophanies, the appearances of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament And we're calling this study Backstage Before Bethlehem. Backstage Before Bethlehem speaks of the pre-birth appearances of Christ. Now, to be honest with you, I feel like I've been itching to preach this series for years. I've referenced the angel of the Lord numerous times in my time at Grace Bible Church. I looked back at my own records and I started teaching on the angel of the Lord about my eighth week here. It's just something that's always interested me, but I've never really had the opportunity to go systematically walking through this amazing aspect of our Bible. I originally thought I would just highlight a few appearances on Sunday mornings until our Christmas Eve service, but I've been making some more in-depth study and, and preparation, and honestly, I found it impossible to choose because every appearance of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is epic. There aren't any minor appearances. They're vital in their own ways. And so let me share with you kind of my overall preaching plan for the next few months. I was going to do five messages on the angel of the Lord, but I've decided to be a little bit more comprehensive, so I'm going to do 17 of them. 17, if you were listening carefully. I can't choose. And so we're going to walk through this. So from now until our Christmas Eve service, that will be our focus both Sunday mornings and Sunday evenings. And Christmas Eve, we'll look at that series as well. After Christmas, I'm going to take a very short break and preach a mini-series on a topic I try to cover at least one time a year, the importance of preaching. And I'm calling this little mini-series A Listener's Guide to Preaching. And we're going to look at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 just for a couple of weeks. Then early in January, on Sunday evenings, we'll get back to Backstage Before Bethlehem. And in March, we'll then begin our final run to finish the Pentateuch as we go through Deuteronomy in about 11 messages. So meanwhile, uh, in January, beginning on Sunday mornings, we will go back to 1 Timothy and we're going to go through chapter 2 in the series we're calling The Men and Women of Christ Church. That brings us to Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. So we have some rich, rich times in the Word ahead of us and we've planned ahead about 40 messages or so. But for this morning... All I want to do today is just kind of whet your appetite concerning the angel of the Lord and to make this study together. 
And as we've done on occasion before, I'm simply going to ask and answer a series of questions to kind of lay a foundation for us and give us our basis for our time that we'll be spending in about 14 different books of the Old Testament over the coming weeks. I just want to get your your mental wheels kind of steering in the right direction here. So we're going to go through a few questions. The first question, how will I benefit from learning about the angel of the Lord? How will I benefit from learning about the angel of the Lord? And I'll give you four of them. Four benefits. First of all, by learning God's priorities. You'll benefit by learning God's priorities. The American evangelical world has so often butchered the Bible and turned it into merely a guide for better living. It stripped it of its greatest power in that it reveals the very mind of God. It reveals the priorities of God. And for example, one of God's priorities you're going to see very, very clearly in the ministry of the angel of the Lord is the nation of Israel. Almost every appearance of the angel of the Lord is intertwined with God's plan for Israel. I'm going to spend a long time on this in a few minutes. And so we learn God's priorities. That's a, that's a tremendous benefit. We don't take what we think are God's priorities and try to find little Bible verses that, that um, tell us that we're right. We simply learn what God's priorities are and let them speak for themselves. The second benefit, how will I benefit from learning about the angel of the Lord? By seeing God's sovereignty in action. By seeing God's sovereignty in action. The angel of the Lord does something wonderful for us. He pulls the backstage curtain away so that we can look into the inner workings of heaven itself to see how God is working in the world. Because studying the angel of the Lord reaffirms in absolute uncertain terms, no uncertain terms rather, that everything that happens in the world is by design. There's proactive actions by God. He's not just rolling the dice hoping that his will happens. He is making it happen. You say, well, how does the sovereignty of God work? The angel of the Lord shows us. He makes it work. He makes it work. How else will you benefit? By elevating your view of Christ. By elevating your view of Christ. This is not just an academic study. This is not just a theological exercise at all. That would be worthless. It's a unique opportunity to get to know aspects of our Savior that we don't normally look at. That are less familiar to us. We begin to see a more three-dimensional understanding of Christ that begins over 2,000 years before Bethlehem and ends with a prediction of the second coming of Christ in the future. I'm going to put it this way. Paul, who arguably knew Christ better than any man alive in his lifetime, said in Philippians 3, verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. You're going to see aspects of the Lord Jesus Christ that are not revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And one more benefit. You'll benefit by previewing your own coming face-to-face meeting with Christ. You'll benefit by previewing your own coming face-to-face meeting with Christ. The appearances of the angel of the Lord are just that. They're meetings that Christ has with men and sometimes with women as well. If you've placed your faith in Christ, don't forget, you will have a face-to-face meeting with Jesus himself. That will happen. And so we're previewing that encounter by seeing Jacob, who was given his faith by the angel of the Lord, by seeing Moses, who worshiped on the holy ground of the angel of the Lord, by seeing Joshua, who submitted fully to the wishes of the angel of the Lord, by seeing Gideon, who trusted completely in the power of the angel of the Lord, by seeing Elijah, who found perfect comfort in the angel of the Lord, by seeing Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who stood peacefully in the mighty presence of God himself, enjoying communion and fellowship with the angel of the Lord, with Christ. And so this series, how will it benefit you? This is as direct and pure an application of our theme verse, Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim as we can get. We gave 10 messages to study Satan. No way I'm going under 10 for Jesus Christ. Great, great benefits to you. Here's a second question. How do we know the angel of the Lord is God himself? How do we know the angel of the Lord is God himself? These appearances are described as the angel of Yahweh. Well, aren't angels those things that fly around with wings in heaven? Yes, sometimes. 
Angel, though, is simply a word used to identify one who is sent, one who brings a message. It's a word that really means technically a messenger. The Hebrew term for angel is used over 100 times in the Old Testament to refer to a human messenger. In fact, there's an example in the New Testament as well when we see in the, in the book of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 to the angel of the church of Ephesus, to the angel of the church of Thyatira. Those are human messengers. We've talked about that on other occasions. When the Old Testament uses the term angel, it speaks primarily of the purpose of the angel, not his nature. So don't look for anatomy lessons. Don't look for wings on angels. Look for what is his purpose. And it is to bring a message. And so we use the context of every passage and some other variables to determine whether an appearance of an angel in the Old Testament is a created angel, a created human, or the angel of the Lord. We have to use context to determine that. How do we know that the angel of the Lord in general is God himself? We'll get to the Son of God part momentarily. How do we know this? And it does present a little bit of a problem because, after all, God said to Moses in Exodus 33, 20 that no man can see God and live. So how do we know that this is God? In Judges 6, 22, Manoah, the father of Samson, expresses this exact fear after seeing the angel of the Lord when he says, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. He thinks that he's going to die because he's seen the face of God. The angel of the Lord answers him with kindness, though. In verse 23 of Judges 6, the Lord said to him, Peace to you, do not fear, you shall not die. Very simply explained, what is the angel of the Lord? It is a physical manifestation of the invisible God. It is not the essence of his very being. No human can behold that. So how do we know the angel of the Lord is God himself? Well, let me give you five reasons. The first reason is the angel of the Lord is spoken of and addressed as God. The angel of the Lord is spoken of and addressed as God. In Genesis sixteen thirteen, Hagar called the angel of the Lord the God who sees and expressed amazement that she saw him and lived. In Exodus 3, verse 2 and following, when the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the midst of the burning bush, the text says, quote, God called to him from the bush in verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 6 says that Moses was afraid to look at God. He's spoken of as God. He's addressed as God. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon in Judges 6, the angel is called the Lord. And Gideon referred to him as the Lord numerous times in the conversation. There's no question in Gideon's mind as to the identity of the angel. So the angel is spoken of and addressed as God. So the second reason we know that this is God himself. The angel of the Lord claimed to be God. He claimed to be God. In his encounter with Moses in Exodus 3, the angel of the Lord explicitly says, I am the God of your father. And later in the same passage, the angel of the Lord identified himself with the covenant name of God, Yahweh. He calls himself Yahweh. Judges chapter 2, the angel of the Lord told Israel, I brought you up out of Egypt and I will not break covenant with you. No angel would claim covenant covenant rights over Israel. And so the angel of the Lord claimed to be God. There's a third reason the angel of the Lord is God himself. The angel of the Lord spoke as only God can speak. He spoke as only God can speak. In Genesis 22, when the angel of the Lord told Abraham to sacrifice his only son, as Abraham is carrying out this command obediently, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and he told him to stop, to stop from the killing of Isaac. Only the angel of the Lord could give that command. And very similarly, only the Lord himself could speak from a burning bush as he did to Moses. He speaks only as God can speak. Here's a fourth reason, and honestly, this one alone would nail it down. The angel of the Lord received worship. The angel of the Lord received worship. The angel told Moses to take his sandals off, since where he was standing was now holy ground. Moses hid his face in the fear of God, Exodus 3, 5, and 6. Manoah, the soon-to-be father of Samson, offered a sacrifice. He offered a burnt offering, which was received. It was accepted by the angel of the Lord in Judges 13. 
Joshua 5.15, Joshua worshipped on holy ground. Why? Because of the presence of the angel of the Lord. We never see a created angel causing places to be holy. Only God causes a place to be holy. One more reason the angel of the Lord must be God. The angel of the Lord exercised divine attributes. He exercised divine attributes. When the angel appeared to all the sons of Israel in Judges 2, he described the discipline that he would inflict on Israel for their disobedience. He demonstrated divine power, authority, justice, and knowledge. When he concluded his conversation with Moses, the angel of the Lord promised to stretch out his hand to do miracles on behalf of Israel. And these miracles would be against Egypt. And what is he doing? He's demonstrating divine power, authority, justice, and knowledge. All of these things. The angel of the Lord is most definitely God. God in the flesh. There's no way around that. But let's get more specific. Third question. How do we know the angel of the Lord is specifically the son of God himself? How do we know he's the son of God? The Old Testament never explicitly identifies the angel of the Lord as Jesus Christ. But from a New Testament perspective, we can see clearly that the Messiah is not identified perfectly until Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Very simple identification there, very obvious. There are some very compelling arguments that show that the angel of the Lord must be the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God. Let me give you a few of these. First of all, neither the Father nor the Spirit characteristically appear in visible form. Neither the Father or the Spirit characteristically appear in visible form. They, appear, they don't appear bodily. In fact, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ coming to earth as a man, John says in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Who has made him known? Jesus Christ has. If you've seen Christ, you've seen the Father. Colossians 1.15 reminds us that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ is the visible manifestation of God. It's the second reason that this must be Christ. The angel of the Lord is identified as distinct from Yahweh, and yet also Yahweh. He's distinct from God, and yet he's also God. How is that? Zechariah 1, 12 and 13. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no compassion for Jerusalem and the cities of Judah with which you have been indignant these 70 years? This is a con- conversation between the angel of the Lord already established as God and the Lord of hosts. And so we have this conversation between God the Son and God the Father. So third reason this must be Christ. This is the easiest one. The angel of the Lord never again appears in the Bible after the birth of Jesus. Never. This is purely an Old Testament phenomenon. When Jesus is manifest, there's no need for a cloaked Messiah in the form of an angel of the Lord. Now, a couple of times in the Gospels, we see an angel of the Lord. And once in a while, after the phrase an angel of the Lord, we see the angel of the Lord. But that's only because it's referring back to an angel of the Lord. And so the angel of the Lord never appears again in the Bible after the birth of Jesus. Here's a fourth reason that must be Christ. The ministry of the angel of the Lord parallels the ministry of Christ. They're the same. They do the same things. Just a couple of examples here. The angel of the Lord and Christ have these parallel ministries. Both give revelation of truth. Both are revealing the truth of God. Both lead, discipline, and bless Israel. They're concerned with Israel. Both commission people for service to God. I'm saying they, that's the same person, but just in two different forms. Both commission people for service to God. You will do this. You will do this. They both say that. Both comfort the downcast and both deliver from bondage. They have this ministry of rescue and of compassion. Both protect the servants of God. There's an element in which there's protection given by both the angel of the Lord and Jesus Christ. We'll see examples of this in the coming weeks. And both of them judge sin. They both judge sin. Those are just a few examples. Just broadly speaking, let me give you some actual examples. 
both the angel of the Lord and Jesus Christ demonstrated compassion for downcast women. Hagar, in Genesis 16 and 21, the very, very first person the angel of the Lord ever appears to in all of the Bible is a downcast woman. And of course, you see Mary Magdalene in Luke chapter 8. The Lord Jesus Christ having great compassion on her. Both the angel of the Lord and Jesus demonstrate compassion for his people, for the people of God. The angel of the Lord told Moses in Exodus 3 verse 7 that he's seen the affliction of his people who are in Egypt. He has compassion on them. He has care for them. And similarly, Matthew 9 36 records Jesus feeling compassion for his people. He says, for they are like sheep without what? A shepherd. Both the angel of the Lord and Jesus give the promise of their presence that I will be with you. The angel assured Moses of his presence in Exodus 4.15, I will be with you. Jesus assures his disciples of his presence in Matthew 28.20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Both the angel of the Lord and Jesus give their servants the promise of future speaking ability. That's, that's specific. The promise of future speaking ability. Moses received the promise of the angel, giving them the words to say to Pharaoh in Exodus 4.12. And Jesus gives a similar promise to his disciples in Matthew 10.19 that he'll enable their speech when they face the rulers and the authorities and the kings. He said, don't worry about what you'll say. I'll give it to you. One more example. Both act as divine judge and executioner. Both act as divine judge and executioner. Isaiah 37, 36 and the parallel passage of 2 Kings 19 tell us of the angel of the Lord defending Jerusalem and slaying the Assyrian soldiers. And of course, Revelation 19, beginning of verse 19, tells of the returning Lord Jesus Christ slaying his enemies before him. More about that in a few minutes. The evidence for the angel of the Lord as none other than Jesus Christ is overwhelming. Now, let me give you all the other potential options. Moving along, that's it. There are no other options. Jesus is the only option. If you want to go home and study that, that's great. Read all 17 major passages. Be like the good Bereans who studied the word of God. Save yourself a lot of time. Just believe me on this one. There are no other options. The angel of the Lord is what theologians call the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. The incarnation of Christ concerns his coming in bodily form. Coming in the flesh is from the Latin word carnes, which means flesh or body. This is before the coming of Christ in the flesh permanently. Let me give you a fourth question here. This is a little bit of a, of a digression, but it's necessary. Did Jesus become the Son of God at his birth, or has he always been the Son of God? It's a little bit of a theological question we have to understand. Did Jesus become the Son of God at his birth, or has he always been the Son of God? We've already clearly established the eternal nature of the second member of the Trinity, but did he take on the role and the title of the Son of God when he was born? In other words, it was Bethlehem where the Son of God came to be, so to speak. Not in the sense of existence, but in the sense of title. Hebrews 1.5, at first glance, would seem to tell us that Jesus took on that role. Hebrews 1.5 says, To which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Very similar to that. Psalm 2, verse 7 seems to say the same thing. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now in the Bible, begetting, it's kind of an old word for us, most often speaks of a person's origin. That's what it seems to say. And it also speaks of a subordinate relationship of a son to a father. But the title son of God doesn't speak to a time element. It speaks to equality because, yes, a son is subordinate to the father, but a son is also equal to the father in that they are of the same essence. Even the Jews understood this. In John 5, 18, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, that is Jesus, because he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. 
And so the Son of God is not a title that came about. The Son of God is a title that says he is deity. He is the same. He is the essence of his Father. And so it can't be a title which only pertains to the time of his birth. The begetting of Hebrews 1 and Psalm 2 can refer to the eternal state of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, that they're the same nature, the same essence. It's not bound to a moment in time. Now, some also feel that Psalm 2 in particular refers to a coronation, the crowning of a king, and that does refer to a specific time. Not the time of Jesus becoming the Son of God, but the time of Jesus receiving the kingdoms of the world. And after all, in context, Psalm 2, 7 and 8 tell us, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Here's the coronation. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. So, who was appearing as the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament? It is perfectly correct to say the Son of God. Many, many centuries before his birth. Let's do a fifth question. and I want to dig in on this one for a few minutes. Why is the ministry of the angel of the Lord to Israel so prominent? Now, you don't know that yet. I'm telling you. The ministry of the angel of the Lord to Israel is prominent And you'll see this as we walk through these weeks. But why is that the case? Classic Reformed theology has so very faithfully represented the true biblical gospel. But one of the weaknesses has been a continued low view of national Israel. Particularly when it comes to the future of a national Israel which turns to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith as predicted by Zechariah. Zechariah 12 verse 10 says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, that is Christ, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This cannot be taken to be somehow the church, metaphorically speaking. This is the house of David. These are the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I don't think the text could be any clearer than that. This is a nation turning to God. John R.W. Stott, great theologian and Christian writer, contributed so much to our understanding of Scripture. He was the pastor of All Souls Church in London from 1950 to 1975. He wrote a book called The Cross of Christ, which is a tremendous work on the gospel, and I would recommend it to all of you. He wrote commentaries on epic New Testament books, Acts, Romans, Ephesians, and in addition to that, he wrote about 50 other books as well. In fact, Stott was influential enough that in 2005, Time Magazine voted him one of the 100 most influential people on earth. He was the chief author of the Lausanne Covenant of 1974 in which churches from 150 nations came together to covenant to a greater emphasis on missions and evangelism and the spread of the gospel. And so we owe much to John Stott. But despite those amazing contributions to the church of Jesus Christ, Stott, according to one researcher, quote, explicitly confesses his commitment to replacement theology in the plainest and quite distressing terms. Replacement theology, or supersessionism, as it's sometimes called, believes at its foundation that the church of Jesus Christ has replaced national Israel and that this replacement is permanent and that it's forever. Now, there's different variations on how they may define Israel, but the core belief is a replacement of some sort. Stott wrote in his commentary on Ephesians, quote, What neither the Old Testament nor Jesus revealed was the radical nature of God's plan. Stop right there. Whenever anybody says this is something not in the Old Testament and Jesus never talked about it, get suspicious. What neither the Old Testament nor Jesus revealed was the radical nature of God's plan, which was that the theocracy, the Jewish nation under God's rule, listen to this, would be terminated and replaced by a new international community, the church that this church would be the body of Christ organically united to him, that Jews and Gentiles would be incorporated into Christ and his church on equal terms without any distinction. You notice that he said that this replacement of Israel by the church wasn't revealed in the Old Testament or by Jesus. 
In his commentary on Romans 11, verses 28 and 29, Stott gives a nod to the Jews. He says, quote, We recognize how the people of God have been, past tense, highly favored by God. What's he saying here? Well, in other words, the church should say to Israel, thanks for the role that you once played, but you will never play again. We'll put you in the hall of fame, but move over. In his sermon titled, The Place of Israel, Stott said, quote, Who then, according to the New Testament perspective, is Israel today? The true Israel is neither Jews nor Israelis, but believers in the Messiah. The true Jews today are Christians. He goes on to say, in the olden days, Israel was a physical designation, meaning the descendants of Jacob. Today, Israel is a spiritual designation, meaning believers in Jesus. What did he just do? He just allegorized the Bible. And we don't do that. In his Romans commentary, he states concerning Israel in Romans 12, it is not a national salvation for nothing is said about either a political entity or a return to the land. He says, Basically, that Romans doesn't talk about Israel returning to the land, so it's not going to happen. Completely ignores the fact that the Old Testament is loaded with references to Israel returning to the land. And that she is the leading nation on earth under the rule of Jesus Christ. See also Ezekiel 36 and 37. This connects the new covenant coming fully to Israel with what? With Israel re-inhabiting her land as a national entity. In fact, Ezekiel 37 gives this glorious illustration of Israel as this valley of dry bones which comes to life when the Spirit of God enters into them. In Ezekiel 37, God says, I will put my Spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Listen to this beautiful picture of the Lord reigning in Jerusalem and Israel at peace. Zechariah chapter 8 And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. This is the physical presence of the Lord on the earth. And Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Now, stop right there. Before I move on with the picture that the Lord gives of a future Jerusalem, a future Israel with God himself, Jesus Christ reigning there, consider the fact that for all of her history, particularly ancient history, Israel lived with invasion, lived with their old men and women being slaughtered, with children slaughtered in the streets. They weren't in peace. They were always in fear of their enemies, mostly because of their own disobedience. But they always lived in fear. Listen to this future picture. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age, and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. What is he saying? You think you want peace? I want it even more and I will give it to you. Thus says the Lord of hosts, verse 7, Behold, I will save my people from the east country, from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Is it any wonder that Jesus wept over Jerusalem? This is the day God is looking forward to on their behalf. Paul asserts clearly in Romans 11:1, 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite. Stop right there. He doesn't say, but now in Christ, the distinction between Jew and Gentile has been erased. He says, I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. He has a proper and right understanding of his own physical heritage as a Jew. He says clearly in Romans 9, 4, and 5, they are Israelites, and to them, listen to this, belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That does not sound like the termination of a nation to me. Now, 
Why take all this time to remind us of the future of Israel? Isn't this just some obscure theological point? I mean, after all, wasn't Jesus born in Bethlehem to become the mascot of nominal American evangelicals? Isn't that why Jesus came? No. What does this have to do with the angel of the Lord? If God is simply going to abandon his promises to national Israel and replace her with the church, or some say maybe even soften it to fulfill Israel in the church and thus erase their distinction, then why all the fuss in the Old Testament over Israel? Why is the angel of the Lord continually intervening over and over and over and over again? Why not just let nature take its course? Why discipline a child you're simply going to abandon or redefine away? If, because of the Jews crucifying Jesus, he was simply going to discard her as a nation, why did he make this investment? Why did he show this great concern for his people? Now, to be certain, part of the angel of the Lord's ministry was to safeguard the circumstances required for his own birth and life and ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. But the angel of the Lord did much, much more than just orchestrating events to get Israel to the exact situation required for his coming to earth as the incarnation of God, the Son of God in the flesh. What we're going to see in the ministry of the angel of the Lord is he's not only protecting Israel, he's disciplining Israel, he's loving Israel, he's caring for her, he's refining her. There's a, a, a concern There's a commitment to her sanctification, to her purification. Why is the ministry of the angel of the Lord so prominent? Very simply, because of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, 15, 17, and 22, in which God promised to bless and love and give to the descendants of Abraham forever. Why is the ministry of the angel of the Lord to Israel so prominent? Because God is a covenant-keeping God and he does not change. And when God said, I will bless your descendants and I will give them a land and that will be forever, he meant it. And we praise God for that because when the Lord Jesus Christ said that no one will ever snatch his sheep out of his hand, he meant it. One more question. Does the ministry of the angel of the Lord give us a preview of the coming ministry of Jesus Christ. Does the angel of the Lord, his ministry, give us a preview of the coming ministry of Jesus Christ? Very much so. Many of the actions of the angel of the Lord prefigure, they're a foreshadowing, they're a taste of the future actions of the Son of God. Interestingly, the first encounter we see with the angel of the Lord is with Hagar, a Gentile servant of Abraham's wife. The angel of the Lord makes great promises to her concerning a blessed future for her son Ishmael. He takes care of her, takes care of her son in the wilderness. And already we see that although God will bring about his redemptive plan through Israel, he's already caring for Gentiles. He's already looking out for them. The Gospel of Luke in particular highlights the tender care of Jesus for women and for guess who else? Gentiles. Societally speaking, in Jesus' day, those are the two lowest things you could be. And yet Jesus said, no, I will care for you. Then the angel of the Lord's encounter with Abraham at the near sacrifice of Isaac Isaac in Genesis 22, not only does the angel of the Lord stop Abraham from sacrificing Isaac, but a substitute sacrifice is promised. There's a substitute. In Matthew 20, verse 28, Jesus said that he, can get, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the substitute sacrifice for sin. He is that promised substitute. The angel of the Lord plays a key role in the exodus of Israel from slavery to Egypt. In fact, in that whole episode, we'll see four appearances of the angel of the Lord in connection to the exodus. Exodus 3, 12, 14, and 23. This is the act of redeeming Israel from slavery and gives us the Old Testament's absolute greatest picture of salvation from sin. We see the Passover lamb sacrificed right before the Exodus and eventually the Lord Jesus Christ will be announced to the world by John the Baptist as who? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The angel of the Lord appears to Joshua, Israel's new leader in Joshua 5 and He is appearing to tell Joshua, you're going to plant Israel's flag in Canaan 
the promised land, right before the battle of Jericho. What's going to happen in the future? Jeremiah 30, verse 3, For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Same thing. And of course, the Lord Jesus Christ will accomplish this right after his own return. Isaiah 11 tells of the coming Messiah. Verse 12 says, He will raise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. In Zechariah 3, the angel of the Lord is interacting with a post-exile high priest named Joshua. It's not the same Joshua as the conquest. And he says, Behold, I have taken your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. What is that? Taking your filthy clothing and giving you righteous ones? That's the doctrine of justification right there. We sing the beloved hymn, His Robes for Mine, which tells of our justification in Christ being given the clean righteousness of the Lord Himself. And the angel of the Lord will come to the rescue in the 8th century B.C. when Jerusalem is surrounded by 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and He will kill them all. And at the return of Christ... Zechariah 14, 12 says, This shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against whom? Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. That's just a sample. That's just a sample of the fact that the ministry of the angel of the Lord is a preview of the ministry of Christ. As we go through these Old Testament passages, you're going to be thinking, this sounds familiar. This is the Jesus I know. And so over the coming weeks, we're going to go in chronological order on the appearances of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. It spans a period of about 1,500 years. The Lord Jesus Christ himself setting up, intervening in history as a precursor and a beginning of his own manifest ministry as the one we know so well, Jesus of Nazareth. He is the one who claimed Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is the eternal Son of God, fully God, the image of the invisible God, the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the Savior of all who would believe on Him. He is the Redeemer of all who would trust in Him. He is the substitute sacrifice of all who would be covered by His atoning blood. Jesus Christ is the mighty King of Israel, the one descended from David yet who lives eternally, the one who will sit on the throne of His father David. Jesus is the coming King of all the kings. He's the coming Lord of all the lords who will judge the world with equity he will destroy his own enemies and he will rescue his own followers he is the radiant one who will be seated on the throne of jerusalem in the coming millennial kingdom he will sit on the throne of new jerusalem in the coming new heavens and new earth he is the everlasting manifestation of god himself in the flesh he appeared on earth many 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 times long before the first christmas so let me ask you this what are you going to do with the angel of the lord What are you going to do with him whose name was not known until Matthew 1 verse 1 introduces him as Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. I want to tell you, this is a unique, this is a rare, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity for you to know your Savior in new and fresh ways, to see the continued endless delights of Jesus Christ, to marvel at his power to win to be touched at his compassion for the weak, to be cautioned by his discipline of the wicked, and to be enamored by his love for the wayward. I am encouraging you, grasp this opportunity. Don't say, oh, this is just another series. This is once in a lifetime. Grasp this opportunity. Don't let it slide by. Commit to this preaching series. Take it all in. Eat it up. Chew it up. Listen to it over and over again. Read the passages. Reread them. Study them for yourself. Pray before every message. Pray during every message. Pray after every message. Because if your view of Jesus Christ can be elevated, if you can know more of him, which was the Apostle Paul's whole goal in life, you will be a greater worshiper. You will be more obedient. And Christ will be all the more real to you so that when you do meet him face to face, it won't be a surprise. It'll be, I know you. I've seen you in the very text of the Bible. 
because here's what we'll see the angel of the Lord doing in his appearances. This is the mission of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. This is the 17-part grand picture of the ministry of our Savior that we'll tour together. The angel of the Lord came to impart saving grace, to promise substitute sacrifice, to pick Israel's mother, to give Jacob faith, to form God's nation, to thwart scheming enemies, to plant Israel's flag, to announce coming discipline, to reignite Israel's love, to provide Israel's hero, to purify God's people, to defend true worship, to preserve Israel's remnant, to save true worshipers, to declare God's dominion, to intercede for sinful man. And the last mission of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament is to bring God's kingdom to earth. That's the ministry of the angel of the Lord Jesus Christ who came backstage before Bethlehem. I'm looking forward to this. I hope you will as well. Let's pray together. Our Father, what a glorious King you have given to us in the person of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we are the church of Christ. We belong to him. He is the head of the church. And it is our greatest privilege. It is our greatest duty. It is our greatest responsibility to fulfill the mission of Colossians 1.28 to proclaim Christ and to list his greatness, to enumerate his glories. And I pray that we as a church would be faithful to that task, to that calling, to give you glory by simply speaking the name of Jesus and looking with wonder and awe at how the Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, has interacted for so many centuries long before Bethlehem. During this Christmas season, Lord, might we not get caught up just in the cultural festivities, which are fun and enjoyable, but might we be caught up in Christ? Might we be enamored with the Christology, the study of our Savior that is so clearly presented in these passages that we will see. I pray for every person here, Lord, who knows Christ, that their love for him would grow exponentially, that their worship of him, their awe of him, their fear of him would grow, and that rather than seeing Jesus just as a, as a nice guy who's a friend, he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, worthy of our worship, worthy to, for us to fall down before him in trembling and in fear and yet in joy and in love. And I pray for a man or a woman who is here or listening to this message who does not know Jesus. And for them to bow before Jesus will be something that he forces them to do. I pray that wouldn't be the case. I pray that your spirit would move even now and that the glorious angel of the Lord in the Old Testament known better to us as Jesus of Nazareth would come to life in their hearts and as you open their eyes to see the glory of the Savior Jesus Christ, they would repent of their sins and come to faith in this glorious Savior with whom we will spend all eternity. We thank you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.